Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Last week we were in Truma and we got uh, instructions for the Israelites to bring uh, gifts so that the Mishkan could be made. We get instructions um, about exactly how they're supposed to make the Mishkan. Very, very detailed instructions. Uh, and now we're going to get uh, some different commandments. We're beginning, of course, at the beginning of the Parsha since we're in the first year of the triennial reading. So let's look at the first verses of Titzavah beginning at chapter 27, verse 20. You shall further instruct the Israelites to bring you clear oil of beaten olives for lighting, for kindling lamps regularly. Aaron and his sons shall set them up in the tent of meeting outside the curtain which is over the ark of the pack to burn from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a due from the Israelites for all time throughout the ages. Okay. So you're going to command the people Israel that they should take to you very pure olive oil so this is olive oil that is not for cooking it is a different quality olive oil it was purified to the extent that it could be burned uh, with a wick and not smoke right and not do all those things Uh, this is why the Hanukkah story we get they needed to purify more oil because you couldn't just take regular olive oil and put it in the menorah you had to really um, purify it to the extent that it can be used for fuel this kind of fuel. And so we're told that w- what is it for? Lama'or, for lighting. Laha'alot, ner tamid. For lighting, for kindling, ner tamid. And ner tamid is? Ah, okay. So that, <laughs> to burn regularly. Right? Tamid sometimes means always. And so that is why we say in English, eternal, right? Eternally is always. It didn't, wasn't burned always. It was burned daily because the wicks had to be cleaned, right? And we know that there was the regular lighting of the menorah daily. If there's a lighting of the menorah daily, it can't be that they're burning all the time. That, that makes no sense. What would the ritual be? If they're burning all the time, there, there's no ritual of lighting the menorah. So we know synagogue in uh, Amsterdam, the Portuguese synagogue, they have a ca- they have no electricity there. So they have a candle going and it's an olive oil mix and they have one that they substitute when they have to change the wick. Right. So they always have one going, right. but it's the same idea. So it's, and we know this from another other places ritually we see tamid, right? We see the tamid offering, right? You, you can't keep offering the same animal eternally like it, right? It's it means Regularly, so that there shouldn't be an end to the doing of it at the time that it's supposed to happen. That's what tamid means here. And it says from evening to morning. Correct. It doesn't say 24 hours a day. Correct. And if it's the menorah, why do we have the word ner? What, what should it say? Yeah, right. Nerot. There's, there's What's the difference? Plural versus singular. Ner is singular, nerot is plural. If we're talking about the menorah, it should say to light the nerot. And and in the ancient world, ner in ancient Hebrew doesn't mean candle, obviously, right? It means light, like the one wick. Does it refer to the shamas? Shamas is Hanukkah. 
This is not the menorah of Hanukkah. This is the menorah of the temple. The seven-branched menorah. There isn't a shamash. There is not. They all count as part of the ritual. Why do we have a shamash on the, on the Hanukkah menorah? Why do we add a candle to the menorah that's higher than all the other one and is the service candle? Why, why is it a service candle? It's extra. Why do we have a service candle on the menorah? Because the, it, the number changes every night. Why? To light the candles. To light the candles. We yeah. could just light the candles with a match. Why do we need a service candle? Uh-huh. Ah. And to, for, to be a kosher menorah, the shamash, the service candle, the one you use to light the other ones, has to be higher than all the other candles. You are not allowed, halachically, to benefit from the light of a Hanukkah, of the Hanukkah menorah. You can't benefit from its light. It's only to glorify the miracle. So if back in the times where you didn't have electric lights and electricity and you're sitting by the table and you're reading and you happen to be near the menorah and God forbid it actually helps you read a little of your novel, that would be an avera. That would be a sin. So we can't have that. So how do we guard and protect against the possibility of God forbid using the light for any real purpose, we have one candle that's higher than all the other candles and that's the candle that's throwing the light that helps you read your book. <laughs> so it's like a, what, what I heard was called a Shabbos story. It's so the candle serving as, as the light when it's really not allowed. Like the Shabbos story goes in. So it's like everything else halachically and Jewishly. We write the laws and then we write the way to get around the law. Right? That's what we're famous for. So we, so the one light has to be higher than the other so that if you're gaining some perp, you can see your scrambled eggs better. It's because of the Shamus. And then you're not, you're not breaking the law, God forbid. Is that something that's pejorative? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I heard that in Texas. Yes. (laughs) Like lots of things in Texas, you're not sure it's pejorative, but probably, maybe. Uh, It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. So the Shabbos Goy is the one who people would pay before Shabbos to come in and turn on lights and the stove so that they could get around not having to do that. Now there are timers. Now there are timers. Um, But it's. It's not a nice thing to pay someone else to do what you're not supposed to be doing, right? That you're not allowed to do. It was, it's not, and it's become kind of a pejorative term. So somebody could sit by you and hold a candle for sure, hold it above the menorah if they're not Jewish, right? Well, I guess even if they're Jewish, they could just hold the candle above the menorah. Hmm? That's the Hanukkah goy. That's the Hanukkah goy. Exactly. There's a difference. Exactly. This, thank you, Laura. This menorah is behind you on the wall. Right. This is the menorah that is often the symbol of the Jewish people. This is the menorah that you see on the banner uh, for the state of Israel. What is it called? The seal? Mm-hmm. Right? That's this menorah. I'll we let you. Julie's class that. You don't call the Hanukkah menorah a menorah. You call it a Hanukkah. Right. It's a Hanukkah. To distinguish it from a menorah, technically it is a menorah. A menorah means that which gives light or is light. So a menorah, anything that gives light is a menorah. Um, But to distinguish it from this menorah, we call it a Hanukkah. It's like a square is actually a rectangle. (laughs) You call it a square. Correct. Got it. Rhomboids, you know, whatever. Okay. Um, 
We go from, so Nair, how do we, we got to this from Nair, okay. <laughs> Flame, right, Nair. So in this sense, Nair is collective. It means all the wicks, all the candles, right? So it's a collective yeah. singular. Um, to light the light, you know, meaning all of them that are going to together give light in the uh, sanctuary, in the Mishkan. Eventually, this becomes Ner Tamid, which is what we all know of as the flame that burns eternally over the ark. So in every synagogue, you will see a Ner Tamid. You see a uh, light. This is ours in this room, because usually the ark is in front of the TV (laughs) screen. Um, And this was originally a candle chandelier. And it was trans, whatever you call it. It was wired. It was transformed into an electrical chandelier. Um, and where did it hang? It was from a Jewish meeting house. It wasn't from a synagogue. A meeting house where? Portugal, I think. Uh, and so it's been repurposed. It's been reconstructed. <laughs> to <laughs> to to be a, a ner tamid for this room, so that when all the lights are off in here, the ner tamid stays on. And in the other room in the sanctuary, you know, we have the big ner tamid that comes off the wall, uh, and it's it's solar powered. <laughs> and so the beautiful thing about that, of course, is that you know the ner the real ner tamid. Right is the sun that that comes regularly, thank God, regularly every morning. It comes back into the sky and makes life on this planet possible. Uh, well, I mean, I know it's always still in the sky. This place, I, I do realize that. Um, but for us, from our perspective, it comes back into the sky every morning and um, and makes life here possible. So how wonderful to have right the source of our near tamid be the true near tamid. Now, if that um, wasn't there. And they didn't have electricity. Then, then the Mishkan would have been dark at night. Correct. Right. So, was the purpose of this to light it? I think so that it was never dark. In the ancient world, I think there's always a connection between darkness and light. And mm-hmm. if it's going to be dark, then you're going to have a ritual that's going to deal with light. I think it's, you know, it's the human impulse to it's still there. use light. We still have that, I think. Well, that yeah, have yeah, yeah. Light. Definitely. I mean, that's you know, that's what Hanukkah is about. I mean, it's why the menorah, I think, is so powerful a ritual in the darkest time of the year and right, there's lots of reasons that we're drawn to rituals of light when it's and dark. You know, you've got a job here with the Torah portion but all these signs that come up I think are so helpful mm-hmm. to understanding Good. the greater Jewish world. Good. Thank you for that. Well, I'm for allowing very happy allowing to go, go off track. <laughs> All right. So this so this is the menorah. This is, uh, and you should look up why it's the seal of the state of Israel and what the original intent was and all that kind of stuff. Um, it says here, the English says, it shall be a do from the Israelites. Is that a good translation? Where is that? Oil. About it's, the oil? It's the end of of, uh, 21. It says, It shall be a do. I think it's Lador Toma, Eight B'nai Yisrael. D-U-E. Chukat Olam. So it's a a chok forever. Literally, that's it. Yeah. So it's a law. It's a law forever for their generations. So do might not... 
It, I don't. I don't love it. Do you leave? I don't love it, but I mean, it because it, it's true that that they are. It's it's due from them, right? It's it's due to God. It's due from them, you know. But it, yeah, like a like a debt. But it's it's not. Chok is closer, right? So you know, a law for them, forever. And it's a ritual law. That's why it's a chok. Mm-hmm. Mishpat. We just finished mm-hmm. Parshat Mishpatim mm-hmm. at the women's retreat. So, or you all with somebody else. Um, uh, mishpatim law. Mishpat. Chok. What's the difference between a chok and a mishpat? Chok is ritual. One you do ritually, and others you do in your regular life. Okay. Chok and mishpat. The priests would do. The rabbis say mishpat are things that we could have gotten to probably on our own. They make sense, right? <laughs> that if we really check in with our ethical and moral sensibilities, we could come up with mishpatim. Chukim, if it's a chok, we never could have come up with that because why do you need a red heifer with not one other colored hair on its? But like it, it doesn't make any. It's not. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't come from ethics and morals in terms of behavior and how we treat each other or things like that. It, a chok is something that um, is simply about relating to God the way. That God has instructed. This is a chok. This is one that we would not have gotten to on our own to light the seven branched menorah um, daily. All right. 28. You shall bring forward your brother Aaron with his sons from among the Israelites to serve me as priests Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron. Make sacral vestments for your brother Aaron for dignity and adornment. Next you shall instruct all who are skillful, whom I have endowed with the gift of skill, to make Aaron's vestments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. These are the vestments they are to make a a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a fringed tunic, a headdress, and a sash. They shall make those sacral vestments for your brother Aaron and his sons for priestly service to me. They therefore shall receive the gold, the blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and the fine linen. All right. And you, who's you? Moses. Moses. You, Moses. Hey, crave Elecha et Cause your brother Aaron to come close, like bring him close, and his sons with him from within the midst of the people Israel to priestify him for me to make him a Kohen we've no, we haven't seen this before this is this is a new idea we've seen it before but in Torah this is a new verb right this is a new term Kohen Kohen this whole business the priesthood is all new starting right here so Aaron and his sons, right? Uh, Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, and Ishamar, his four sons, are going to come with him. They will be made into priests. They are the only priests. The priests will descend from Aaron and his four sons, but soon it's going to be two, two sons, right? Because we know what happens with Nadav and Avihu. Stay tuned. Ve'asita vigde kodesh le'aharon, and you shall make... Big day Kodesh, garments of holiness, Aharon, Achicha, to Aaron your brother. For to what end? For what purpose? 
lechavod ultifaret. Lechavod ultifaret. Tifaret says said like that because it's at the end of a sentence, but it, it's talking about the word tiferet, beauty. Other places you say tiferet. Only at the end of a sentence do you say tiferet. When we say borei periha. Gafen. That's not, how do you say vine in Hebrew? Gefen. When when that double e is at the end of a sentence, it's we change the vowel to a. So tiferet gefen becomes gafen tifaret. Okay, so just so you're not too confused. Lechavod tifaret. The purpose of these garments is lechavod tifaret. What does kavod mean? Honor. Honor. Ah, love it. Mm-hmm. Weight mm-hmm. means importance from kaved. Weighty. So importance. And what does that translate into? Why is that the, you know, what does that point to? They're obviously not just garments that are heavy. <laughs> Honor. Right. Honor. Significant. Yeah. And... Often in English, we use the word glory for honor and glory. And what is this one? Tiferet, beauty. Who's? Ah. Two options. To make Aaron honorable and beautiful. That when he puts these on, he will be a person of kavod. He'll be be treated with respect. respect. It will elicit respect for his role. Because he's going to wear a turban and a thingy that says, Kadosh Ladonai, set apart for God, holy to God. So to make, so he, it will elicit respect, honor, uh, glory, and certainly beauty. The, the text reads dignity and adornment. So that's, they're calling tiferet adornment. More typically, it's beauty. Rita suggests it's not Aaron, God forbid, that we're talking about here. Lechavod tiferet. These garments are to point to the kavod and tiferet of God. That Aaron serves to magnify in the world through these rituals, through wearing these special garments, serves to, to, um, it's his association with God. Elucidate God's kavod, God's honor, God's tiferet. God has the quality of tiferet. And so that's why he puts these on. It's because the divine is, is Kavod, right? We talk about God's presence. God's kavod is going to come rest in the tabernacle. So that everything has to be done so that God's kavod can be there and God's tiferet can fill the mishkan. They have to be beautiful, these garments, right? Because art, doesn't it? Moves us. Beauty, art, moves us to a different place. We are touched in a different place by what is beautiful. And it elicits from us a different response, right, than when we get up here. And that is part of the point of all of this. If we really want to go deeply into 
this business of Aaron and his garments, let's talk a little bit about clothing. Remember? Really? Really? Cheeky, cheeky Jews. Ungrateful Jews. All right, so tell me, what is the first incident of clothing that we have in the Torah? Where's the first time we see we see Adam and Eve? So, what what happened with these clothes? T- tell me something about. You, just kind of our associations with with this clothing incident. Adam and Eve were ashamed. They, they were naked. They they were ashamed. So the clothing was a sign. Lack of clothing was a sign of their shame. Adam and Eve. So wh- why were they ashamed? They, they, they were covered. not ashamed before right. something right. happened. Yeah. What happened? They covered yeah. themselves. Yeah. They sinned. They sinned. Right. So then they had and shame. They covered themselves. Once they sinned, they now experienced shame in their nakedness how do they wind up with clothing <laughs> God, for them. God gives it to them so the first clothing is the result of sin and is a gift from God all I ever saw was a fig leaf <laughs> <laughs> yeah How does clothing help for the sin? Well, you hide inside it. You cover up your shame. Right, but it why would God want you to do that? Ah, why would God want us to do that? So it seems it's not about that they need to cover up for God. God created them a room naked. And they were empathy for their feeling open and vulnerable so God steps in and says this will help you with those feelings if you're going to go ahead and feel that way because now now you feel that way because you've sinned and what was the sin it wasn't just that they sinned that they felt shame what was the sin They well they disobeyed God but what's the problem they ate from the tree of Knowledge of that which is good, and now a new concept arrives in the world that which is evil. Now there's a distinction that lives in them that they can't undo. That there's things that are good and things that are raw, bad. That knowledge is what makes them ashamed of being naked. Nothing is said about their nakedness being shameful. Their new knowledge makes them dis- decide or f- experience that nakedness is embarrassing, is shameful. Because mm-hmm. when we're little, right. we run around happily naked, don't right. we? Yep, yep. But what happens around puberty? We start to understand and we receive the knowledge. It's a sad, sad time. Mm-hmm. We receive the knowledge that now our nakedness there's something complicated about it. And it's not us. We, we feel it when people look at us. 
naked. And now we need to clothe ourselves. Torah is written for the world as it is. Is right? Dreaming of the world as it will be, but it's, it's set and written by people who live in this world, where nakedness does in fact, in our culture, and in the culture of the ancient Near East, where this was written, does mean it's not appropriate after or at puberty. It's no longer appropriate to be naked fully, like, and all the time with everyone. Because that, that's what's true. So God is responding to the fact that they changed into us. But not in everything. Hmm? Not in every culture. That's true. Right. Of course. That's why I said in our culture. 100%. I will always say in our culture, in the culture of the ancient Near East where this was written. Was it the nakedness or was it that they then had knowledge that something bad could come about because of the nakedness? We don't know. That's what we're just saying is that they they know something now. They've changed. They understand the world as, Mm -hmm. as having permutations of something called good and something called evil. And that knowledge changes their relationship to their own nakedness. We could theorize for the rest of the day about why. I mean, we have a little bit, but um, we're, we don't know. But I, but I think it's knowledge create this effect. I mean, is it? It's not knowledge. It's the knowledge that there is good and evil. What happens at adolescence? There's a change in your whole physical makeup. And we become aware that there are other thoughts that people have when they look at us that are no longer innocent. When we are innocent and it's all good, nakedness is fine. It's when we become aware of an element of ra, of bad, that now nakedness is somehow connected with needing to be right covered. Not always, but but sometimes, right? So it's not knowledge. It's knowledge between good and evil. They didn't have those concepts before. There, there wasn't even a concept of good because there wasn't a concept that anything wasn't good. How do you have good if nothing's bad? Right? So it's, it's that knowledge that leads to this relationship between nakedness and needing to cover up. Yeah. And this is what led to uh, Orthodox Jews, women covering up, sitting separately from men because of sexual attraction that might occur. So, yes, that's why they separate. It's because of sexual attraction that might occur. Yes. So the original sin that they that term that they use in the Christian world particularly has to do with the knowledge of the difference between good and evil and that became a sin. No. The sin is not acquiring knowledge. No, it's the awareness. So it was disobeying God. No. The sin was they were told not to eat from that tree. They disobeyed. They disobeyed. That well it's not as simple as as I was taught. That's right. You should come back when we begin Genesis. Because one thing more I want to say about that is, um, oh God, I had it. It just went. Okay. So the what? The, the, some of the rabbis say that's not the sin that gets them thrown out of the garden. By the way, what is the sin that gets them thrown out of the garden? Say some of the rabbis. Uh-huh. It's not eating from the tree. Lying about it? It's God says to yeah. Adam, how do you know you're naked? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? And what does Adam say? She made me do it. She made me do it. That woman you gave me <laughs> made me fault. eat. It's, it's her fault. Herself. God goes to Eve and says, is this true? She said the serpent told me. And Eve said the Nachash <laughs> told me something that made me do it. Right? And so everybody blames somebody else. And there's one interpretation that I really like that says that is what gets them thrown out of the garden. Not being accountable. They they are not taking responsibility for what they've done. They can't stay in paradise. They 
they have to go out into the world and figure out what whatever they need to figure out to, to be able to learn how to take responsibility. All right. So, all right. That's so that's our earliest thing of clothing. Yes. Not a positive association, particularly. Mm-hmm. We were happy and peaceful and wonderful in paradise and naked and happy with that. And then we're not. Right. And now we have all this knowledge of good and a category evil. Who wants to know about evil? Nobody. Like, and we're stuck with it as humanity forever now. Thank you very much. Not a positive uh, clothing and experience. The other extreme with all the jewels and the clothing and. At the end of 1984, which I can't imagine why you would reread the book 1984. Right. That's how they break it. That's that's the end for Winston when he blame, when he says do it to her. It's not my fault. Do it to her. Right. When when he we that's the manifestation of evil, <laughs> right? And it's totally related to our. Uh, Eden story. All right. So uh, the next place that we have an important story that deals with clothing is also in the book of Genesis. What one is that? Yeah. Jacob and Esau. What happens there? (laughs) So tell me. So he dresses as Esau in order to steal the birthright. To steal the birthright, to get the blessing, not the birthright, the, the blessing from his father, who they think is dying. So, so what is the association with this one? Deception. Lying, in order to acquire, right, or whatever, you know, to get a promotion. Right? To, it, deception in order to get something that you want. Right? Okay. So, not a terrible, terribly positive association. All right, tell me what happens. Uh, Next, Joseph. Yeah, of course. Joseph. What does he have? A coat of many colors. A coat of many colors. It's given to him by his father. In, because... Favoritism. Favoritism. So he loves his son, just like God giving them clothing. We give clothing and adornment and beauty to the people we love. Well, that's a positive association, finally, with clothing. Except, Jealousy. what happens? Gets him in trouble. <laughs> gets him in trouble, and then? It gets brought back to him with blood on it. It gets brought back with blood on it by? Deception. His brothers, who are using deception... In order to lie, right? They're lying because he, in fact, is not torn apart by beast Joseph. He's just fine, except they sold him into slavery. So now he's a slave. Um, and and why do they do that? Why are they lying in this case? Like they're jealousy. That's why they got him. They're afraid. They're afraid. They're ashamed, right, of what they've done. They can't face their father and say when he says, "Where's Joseph?" Uh, Dad, listen, take a deep breath, just sit down, right? We sold him into slavery. Um, Deception and lying in order to, right, to protect themselves. And they're doing it again out of shame and guilt. And not being accountable. And not being accountable. Not taking responsibility. You see a theme here with clothing? Um, the first, the one of the um, places we really see a um, shift in that is with. I won't make you work for it. 
You can say tomorrow. It's, it's that funny, Laura? Well, Bert said it. Tamar. What does Tamar use clothing for? To seduce. How, is she, does she do seduce as herself? No, she pretends to be a prostitute. She pretends to be a prostitute. So Tamar's using clothes for deception. In order to acquire what? In order to acquire what? Freedom or a son or something, right? In order to acquire a son from her father-in-law, whom she seduces. So, again, clothing used for deception, lying, in order to acquire what someone wants. What is the difference in this case from all the other ones before it? Sex. Sex? Okay, yes, sex is new in terms of what's going on here, probably. Hmm? It's a woman. It's a woman. But Eve was a woman. Eve was a woman. She later they're all intentional. It's closer. Child was a positive. Ha ha ha! For the first time, Torah sees this act as positive. Judah says at the end of that story, she is more righteous than I. She did the right thing. I did not do the right thing by her. Torah understands this as positive. Who descend that she has a son? Who descends from this son? David. And who's going to descend from David? The Mashiach. The Mashiach. So lest we be confused whether or not this was seen as a positive act by Torah, the Messiah descends from this act. Mashiach will come from what Tamar did. So the end justifies the means? In her case, yes. In her case, yes. All right. Here's our history of clothing. <laughs> right? This is the Israelite history of clothing. So we get something brand new now with the priests. They are going to have special clothing that will not be used for deception. It will not be used for lying. It will not be used to acquire. What are the priest's clothings going to be used for? Kavod and Tifarad. Right? Kavod and Tiferet. Honor and beauty. Only. Only and ever. So a way of redeeming, if you will, all of our written experiences, our stories about how garments and clothing are used. It is no accident, I don't think, that those stories are what they are and that then we get a priesthood that is robed in kavod and tiferet. This is our opportunity. The priesthood and the rituals were the opportunity for us to move from sinful, selfish, you know, selfishly motivated behavior and a state of being sometimes once we've committed that to a state of ritual purity and goodness, a return to kedusha, to holiness, and a way to finally we have a mechanism whereby we can achieve that as a people in relationship to its God and and it hopefully um, then also uh, cleanses the space from the ways we mistreat each other. Because all of these rituals were about cleansing the space. And why do we need the Mishkan to be pure? Why does it have to be cleansed all the time? 
God's kavod can't come to a place that has tum'ah, impurity, or sin. God's kavod can't rest there. It's, and it's not, a, it's not just like, okay, because I don't want to, it makes me mad when y'all sin, right? It's, it's like, we've talked about this before, like magnets, when you put the wrong ends of the magnet together, they repel, right? It's just, that's how the universe is put together. They repel. So, so we have to have some way, and, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, we don't talk about it this way very often, but Torah's understanding is that this is a gift. Just like Adam and Chava are given the gift of clothing because of their experience of shame and guilt, the priest is given by God the gift of clothing so that the Jewish people can be cleansed of their own guilt and shame when they sin. And we're gonna, right? Because we live in the world post-Eden. Every generation is going to, and God accepts this, every generation of humanity is going to sin. We are going to mistreat each other. We are going to lie. We are going to cheat. We are going to deceive. We are going to steal. We are going to do everything we need to to acquire what we want and to get what we want. We'll manipulate. We'll stab somebody in the back. It's going to happen. It's just going to be. Watch any toddler, right? Mine, right? And we spend the rest of our lives on some level fighting. Mine, 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 right? Even the attitude of it's mine. My partner, my dog, my child. Mine, 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 mine. Not really. They're theirs, right? They they belong to them, uh, right? And so God understands that and gives this gift of kehuna, of priesthood, and this gift of the menorah, of of these rituals that allow us to um, to deal with the fact that we're gonna mess up. Reuben? That the rabbis have the authority to forgive you? No. We're talking right now about the priesthood. I'm I'm sorry, I meant the priesthood, of course. So the priests don't forgive. Who forgives? God forgives. The priest does the ritual whereby God is moved to forgive. The, the priest offers the, we offer the thing, the, the animal or whatever it is. The priests do those rituals that turn that offering of ours into an olah, into a sacrifice that then propitiates God and moves God Excuse me, to forgiveness. Kind of closes the deal. But that, that's in the ancient religion. That's an not, ancient not biblical, today. The right. ancient in the ancient cult, that's how it worked. That's how the cult worked. Right? And the blood of the victim was what purified the space. So it's not just about God forgiving. It's about once we mess up, we've caused sin <laughs> to contaminate the camp. To contaminate the Mishkan. Because the Mishkan's gonna draw all that sin, right? Like a Magna. So soon, even if I sin in the privacy of my tent, which I'm going to do <laughs> routinely, because where do we sin the most often? In private. At home, right? With the people closest to us. Who do we treat the worst? <laughs> so um, not you. I know not you and Blanche. I know it's very different in your house, but at other people's houses, right? It's, it's often, so even in the privacy of my house, if I do something sinful, that's going to contaminate the public space. So the ritual blood of the victim cleansed the space of my sin so that the divine presence, the kavod of God could rest in the Mishkan. Were the priests also the judges? 
They were not judges. Only in certain circumstances, the urim and tumim that the priest wore served as a oracle. So you could come ask a question of the oracle, but it had to be a yes or no question, and it had to be a big one. Should we go to war with blah, blah, blah? Right? A big decision like that, it, you could consult the oracle, and it would tell you yes or no, and that presumably was from God. Um, but uh, Moshe is the adjudicator, remember, in Parshat Yitro? Moshe is... Right. is adjudicating the law before the people and then Yitro comes and says it's not good for you it's not good for them right. so what has to happen you have to have other judges that's right so judges for tens hundreds thousands tens of thousands and then the big stuff the supreme court is Moses but the the priests have no place in that in that hierarchy of judges and judgment correct so what does that tell us Separation of church and state? Separ- no. No. It is not separation of church and state. Right, because the law was God's. Yes, that's right. The law is God. Moses is doing God's will. So it's not separation of church and state. That's new here, right, where we are. It's still not the case in Israel, and, th- and they're not looking for it to be. So and it's interesting to have sat through the Hartman program that I you know, taught, I engage, and to hear them say, we don't, we're not interested in that. Progressive Jews saying, we're not interested in the separation of church and state. It's a Jewish state. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't want Judaism to not have anything to say about what we think we should be doing in our civil society. It should dafka be based on Jewish values and what we think Jewish obligations are. So that's an interesting thing that was a change of thinking for me. I've been a little arrogant You're about American. thinking we have it right. I'm American. You're American. That we have it right and what, what's the problem over there? Why can't they get it? Separate church and state and you're all good. right? So, but, um, so I've been humbled. The... So it's not separation of church and state. What is it, though? The separation of powers. Ha. What do we call that? How do, how do we talk about that in our modern... A balance of powers. A balance of powers. Checks and balances. Separation of powers. It is this old for our people that we understand. If you have the Supreme Court, the Senate, the Congress, the executive branch, if you have all of that in one perspective, you know, with controlled by one perspective, it is dangerous. It is not a good thing. It wasn't set up that way. It was set up with a separation of powers on purpose. That the executive branch and the judicial branch and the legislative branch, they would be a way to have right checks and balances because we start sliding into really scary stuff like fascism pretty quick when all of those are controlled right by one way of seeing things. It's this old that, that, that the priests were not the judges. Moses and the elders and the leaders were judges. And later we're going to see that we're going to have the priesthood and we're going to have the judicial branch. And then what are we going to have? What's the third uh, you know, kind of power that comes into that equation? So we're going to have, it's true, we're going to have a king. Many years later, the Sanhedrin, but that's many, many years later. We're going to have prophets. Prophets. We're going to have the priests, and actually it's going to come down to priest versus prophet. It's going to come down to ritual power, ritual law versus ethical, moral imperatives put forward by the prophets. 
what's the and the Prophet's Sanhedrin? later. The Sanhedrin is later, and it becomes it's the big court in ancient Israel, but it's later than all of this. It's rabbin, it's rabbinic, early, early, early rabbinic. I'm going to tie it into. I'm sure you can tell the story a lot better. Uh, bring in uh, the the Purim story. Um, Why? Because there's a uh, story in the Talmud that King Ahasuerus. I always have. I know it's it's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, that of course the Babylonians destroyed the first temple and they they kept many of the spoils of war, including the priests' garments, and that the Ahasuerus took off his during this forum this this uh, story during the party um, and then donned took off his uh, kingly apparel and put on the uh, clothing of the high priest because the it was much finer and to bring himself the glory and um, I do you not know this I really? do not know oh, the story okay. well that's the story okay <laughs> okay well, well, there you go. So, so it does. It doesn't put. It, it, like my initial reaction is that it does not put Achashverosh in very good light, right? That he's using the garments for his own kavod and tiferet. And so, how he becomes the hero of that story, like, is interesting. He becomes. He's the hero of the Purim story in some way. So, well, he's not a bad guy. Maybe the garments transform. No. I think he's uninformed and easily led by his vizier. I don't think he's a bad guy at all. We have a story right now of Trump being on a battleship in the Navy and wearing a uniform with all kinds of medals, which outrages the naval And why is that out an outrage to them? Because he, he never avoided the draft five times. <laughs> So someone who avoids the responsibility to serve and then puts on a uniform that means you were not only willing to serve but risked your life. And if you have lots of medals, what does that mean? That you saved other people. That you risked even further voluntarily, right, out of a sense of duty and honor, kavon, um, to your role, you risked even further and achieved even, you know, greater acts of self Sacrifice, um, and so to, now to put that on for one's own kavod and tiferet, it is deception. It is ego, right? It's all those things that we talked about. It's de- it's deception in order for me to acquire what I want, which in this case is kavod and tiferet for me. So if we continue with the clothing and the the transformation suddenly of clothing being mostly negative, and then we get to the priest. Um, the development of that idea of clothing, as somebody mentioned earlier, for women and for all people, dressing in an appropriate way, was that done by the rabbis in the Middle Ages? Um, all the rules about women wearing certain... It, it's always been. In every male-dominated culture, Women have always been told what to wear and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. So it never came from Torah or even it's, from it's, rabbis. It's there. It's certainly, it's, like it's in every culture. culture. Yes. Every culture that's not, that's not either shared power equally or a matriarchy, 
it's in a patriarchal culture, men tell, tell, but you know, like they, they decide what is appropriate for women to wear and what is not appropriate. And and this patriarchal society of the Torah is no different, absolutely no different than any other, right? Um, Yes. Uh, Thinking that this was written after the priests are already dressed that way. So this justifies mm-hmm. the way they're dressed. Yes. So in a way that they're deceiving people by when this when this. So Sheldon always, on the positive, hopeful, optimistic end of things, uh, <laughs> says the the priest wrote this. <laughs> right. Um, so you. One could, if one were cynical enough, <laughs> one could say that isn't this deception too, that they're saying this is how we honor God is to put on all these lovely clothes that are ours. God has mandated. Right. So that is absolutely one way to read this, 100%. When I stand up in front of a bar mitzvah class in seventh grade and talk about the beauty of a talit, and how gorgeous it is, and how that moves us to a place, right? I'm someone who wears a talit. So am I deceiving them because I just want to wear a pretty talit? That's that's a cynical way to understand it. The rabbi wants to wear one, and so she's going to tell them this is a way to get to God. Okay. So if we could, we could assume that of the priesthood. Probably it's closer to this is how they understood, right, what... Because it evolves, right? It evolves out of other pagan Canaanite cultures around them that do the same thing, right? This didn't drop out of the sky. They didn't just make this up. Like, ooh, we like that pretty dress. I'm going to put that on with this nice, you know, turban. And let's say that has to do with God, right? It, it, it emerges out of the religions around them and is their new take on it. Now, does it become at some point self-serving? Maybe. Absolutely. We know that because we know the rabbis are yelling and screaming about the corruption of the priesthood. So we know eventually it does, in fact, become, um, at least to some people's opinion in in ancient Israel, it does become self-serving. It seems, and and maybe, maybe always people who are in positions of authority are by nature self-serving in, in terms of saying this is good for the people this is this is what's supposed to happen it, but I think sometimes that's a fine line right between what I say for my own purposes versus what I really believe to be good right good practice and what we should other than ethically well even ethically I guess we could argue right we come down on different sides of ethical issues both from a good place um so it's so it's a it's human nature, right? That 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 balance is 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 human nature. And you actually bring me to one of, one of the things I wanted to to get to, which was, um, who does God tell to? Who does God tell Moses to get the most talented tailors and seamstresses, the most skilled workers? Is that what it says? Yes. Yes, but that, is that uh, what it says? Is that the qualification? The most skilled? Who I have endowed with skill. What else? What else? Should be there. 
Is it not there? Am I lying to you? Well, my have endowed with the gift of skill, is what the English says. Ha ha ha! That's three. why. Verse three. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Asher Miletiv, whom I have filled with Ruach Chochma, Rita. Is that great skill? No. What is Ruach Chochma? It's the spirit of wisdom. The spirit of wisdom. Pick people whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom or with wise spirit. Chochmah Chacham. Smart. A Chacham. A Tamid Chacham. Smart student. Right? So, Chochmah. These are all words used by Kabbalah. Tiferet is one of the Sfirot. Right? One of the ten emanations, one of the ten flavors of God. As is Chochmah comes is associated with one of the um, Sfirot as well. So this is this is where Kabbalah draws right a lot of its language. So the Rambam, who's the Rambam? Maimonides. Maimonides says, why is that the qualification? If you want beautiful priestly clothing, go to the best tailors, the best seamstresses, the most skilled artisans that there are. Why would it call that and identify that as Ruach Chochmah, the spirit of wisdoms in them? Because Rambam says because the tendency is to be trapped by the garments. The tendency is to be seduced by the bling. Because it's a fine line between kavod and tiferet being manifested and, and us understanding that that's about God or is it the kavod and the tiferet of the priest, right? And and that's a very, which you've indicated, Sheldon, it's a very slippery slope and it's a, and it's a constant tension. And so Rambam says that's why the people who create the garments have to have ruach chokhmah because they need to create the garments with the kavanah, with the intention that they will be used to point towards the glory and beauty of the divine as it manifests in our lives versus the kavod and the tiferet of the priests, right? Or right or kind of meaning that the wrong way of of having that show up, right? That we respect the authority but not the authority capital A, and that 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 they are made by people who are filled with ruach chokhmah means that the garments will be um, kind of charged with their intention, and it'll help keep Aaron safe from that temptation to confuse it with it's about me. But if we were hiring the architect for this building. That was the difference in the man we hired and all the other candidates we had. He had the spirit that we wanted to see in this building. He was not doing it for his glorification, but for the glorification of a synagogue, of, of the life that would be led here. It was, it just hit me, was that, he never said that, we never said that. But when we asked each architect, what would make a synagogue design different from a medical building or a library or whatever? He said, it's the light. And that's what we're about, the light. So that very thing came up again in this building. So what's most interesting to me about that story is that y'all wanted somebody mm-hmm. with Ruach Chochman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, 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 that. It's another to infuse it 
Which that th- that was y'all's concern. That was the criterion by which you decided is very much about what makes this congregation special. What makes this community special is it that was the deciding factor for y'all. Was he has ruach chokma? That's the guy for us. Not because. Not how fancy it could look, not how expert, but somebody that understood what this place needed to be filled with. And because y'all had that awareness and had that as your most important commitment, we are in a space that absolutely contributes to, to, to that manifesting more fully in our community. Right. Right. But we interviewed candidates who weren't, and he defined it. There you go. There's, there's another term used in that same sentence, chokhmei lev. That, that's the plural. So uh, no, those who are wise of heart. Okay, but I mean, but then uh, that's different from ruach. Is that different from ruach? Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's that same sense of they are, their heart is moved like, with wisdom. They are. Because the, when we talk about heart, it's, it's not just that they have wisdom. It, there's another piece to it. That there's a love to it. Okay, at least as we use the term. Yeah, that, uh, right, as we use it. For, for ancient the Israel, the 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 thought was in the heart. Lave, your lave is where you thought from. Ruben, are you trying to say something? I'm just wondering where we have the Ruach here in the text. It is in verse 3. And Bird is pointing to the beginning of verse three. You will you will talk to, speak to all those who are wise of heart, whom I have filled with ruach chokhmah, the spirit of of chokhmah, of wisdom. And I wonder why it's not in the English. It is. It's really difficult to teach. Um, it's a skill. But I know. So, uh, you know. That's what you look for, in, not just in a builder of vestments, but in some, anybody you want to interact with. You know, if it's, what kind of a person you, know, to, you want to build a family with or go into business with or have a friendship with, somebody who's wise of heart and spirit. Absolutely. Um, and to your point, Ruben, because probably literally, not literally, probably the literal words m- mean they are skilled. <laughs> right? That's probably what the euphemism is. But I think we lose. I just think we lose a lot when we, and I'm not saying JPS is wrong, God forbid, I'm taking on the JPS translation. Um which is what you have. You have my same, you know, um, JPS translation in the Green Book. They took this translation and used other commentary on it. Um, but I just don't think we get. And maybe it's just, it's fine that they translate it like that because I have job security. Because <laughs> I, just, I just, I think if you don't go to the Hebrew, what is it? It's like kissing somebody through a veil, right? You, you, it's not that it technically isn't a kiss, but is it the same as not kissing through a veil? No. Not at all, right? There, there's an intimacy. There's a there's a depth. There's a there's a way we're moved by what the Hebrew actually means. That that even if that translates in, into skillful, I think we miss it if we don't say that I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. Like that's aren't very those, different from skilled artisans. Aren't those related also chokhmah to what God had in creating the the world? 
We don't. We don't see chokhmah anywhere in the creation narrative. No, we see ruach. We don't. We, we see ruach. God is ruach at the beginning. The ruach Adonai merachefet al The spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Um, so ruach we have at the very, very, very beginning. So this wisdom is very deep. So I mean, this is deep stuff. Yes. Not just smart and skilled. Co- correct. Yes, this is a very deep uh, kind of wisdom. All right. So the Rambam warns us right against um, getting getting uh, distracted by the shiny. You know, gold, silver, like, you know, we, we get very easily, you know, pulled to shiny things. And, uh, and so the, the work for us, you know, we don't have a priesthood anymore, obviously, but we do wear special clothing as Jews. We wear special clothing always traditionally on Shabbat. We wore, uh, new white clothing during the Inquisition. This is one of the ways people were caught and charged with Judaizing, you know, backsliding, uh, was because uh, a servant noticed that they put on, uh, fresh clothes Friday night, and they were turned in for Judaizing, um, because it was that much a part of what it meant to observe Shabbat, was that you put on fresh clothes, and um, and certainly the talit, I think, for us has become, you know, that we all wear the priestly robes when we come uh, to a synagogue, or even if we're davening at home, you know, during the daytime, we, we put on a special garment, so we still have this connection, this relationship to special ritual garments were attached, I think, to when we opened the ark, seeing the Sifrei Torah dressed right in in coats, you know, that are s- special. And so we still have this connection to that, and we should. We're supposed to be drawn to the beautiful, and we're supposed to express our connection to the holy through beauty. And, and that connection is very, very important. Rambam talks about, and so does Aviva Zorenberg, that the challenge is to not let the trappings be what draws our attention, right? That, that our attention doesn't stop at the trappings. I belong to a wealthy synagogue because it's a very beautiful, you should see the covers on our Sifrei Torah. Like, that if, if it becomes about the trappings, that's, right, and, that, and there's always that tension. And there, and there should be an awareness for us, at least, of, of, of the tension in that. Um, and that the, the garments of the priests, you know, still, we have those colors, we use those colors, and we should respond to their beauty. And it should fill us with a sense of relationship to kavod and tiferet, God's glory, the glory that is made manifest in us when we behave in ways that are holy, when we behave in ways that are about kindness and compassion and empathy and forgiveness and transformation and healing. It's supposed to... It's supposed to fill us with a sense that we can be agents of kavod. We can be vessels of kavod and tiferet. And, um, and our job is to figure out, so what's going to help do that for us as a community? What, what are our ways of attaching to? And as silly as it is, as I'm standing here in a Purim costume, um, seeing all those little kids this morning in their Purim costumes, seeing their teachers in their in a Purim costume, right? Seeing everybody to the director of the school in a Purim costume, seeing Rabbi Rubin in his costume. Like, there's something powerful about that, right? About that when we dress in certain ways and we're celebrating that, you know, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. You know, that <laughs> like every Jewish holiday. Um, and... And for me, it's like, okay, so how do we, how, that's one way. Like, I love it that we come dressed for Purim. Tonight, you're going to come dressed in your athletic marathon gear for Purim to support Haim. Hopefully, you all got your video 
from us? Good. Um, and so we're all going to come in. And there's there's a way that, that dressing like that and dressing up and dressing crazy and dressing silly all together as a community, there's ways that still manifests, right? An expression of this is this is a special time for us and it's a time to connect with joy and to not take for granted that we're here and free and all those things and that we're going to fight every villain, every villain that rises to power and takes advantage of... It's the pink <laughs> it's our job, right, to remember that, that that fight, you know, that we must fight that fight and help other people and ally ourselves with other people who are fighting that fight in other places in this world all, all the time. And so I think there's still ways that Big Day Kodesh, you know, that that that, that clothing and, and other kinds of wonderful, beautiful things that we have in our ritual lives can, uh, can bring us a sense of kavod and tiferet. And uh, this Shabbat, may we... Be about practices and be around people who inspire us to bring God's kavod and God's tiverit into this world, God's glory uh, and real beauty into this world. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.